From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Tim Descher, and this is Heritage Explains. On February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. Wall-to-wall coverage, talking heads, infographics, previously recorded carnage being played over and over again. It got the royal media treatment, that's for sure. Now over six months later, tens of thousands of people killed, millions of Ukrainians fleeing their homes, and tens of billions of dollars worth of damage. Where do things stand? Now, after it became clear that Ukraine was going to put up a fight, Russia began to lose ground, and recently Ukraine launched a counteroffensive to reclaim territory Russia took, enabling Kiev to seize the momentum in the war. Here's ABC News. Ukrainian forces claiming to have retaken more than 40 towns in just a matter of days. And tonight, we've learned that in some cases, they have pushed Russian soldiers right back into Russia. Reports those Russian troops fleeing in disarray, some surrendering in some places, leaving heavy equipment behind in the east near Kharkiv, the second largest city. And the images tonight, look at this, people greeting Ukrainian soldiers with hugs. But as many have said, this war is far from over, and that means the U.S. must determine what our involvement going forward looks like. As Congress continues to debate over more funding for the war, what is the sensible amount, especially given all of the challenges with the U.S. economy right now? And how do we protect against corruption and make sure accountability is attached to funding? Jim Carafano is a Heritage Explains regular and also the vice president of the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. He recently returned from a trip to Ukraine. He has an up-close and personal perspective of the damage, the devastation, and the challenges moving forward. On this episode, he paints a vivid picture of the situation and gives next steps for the U.S. leaders to consider in moving forward with our support of Ukraine's defense. You don't want to miss this. But first, listen up. Want the inside scoop on what's happening here at the Heritage Foundation? Check out Heard at Heritage, an all-new show replacing the Heritage Events podcast. It'll feature cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement and, of course, the Heritage Foundation's premier events and programming, brought straight to you. Check it out at heritage.org podcasts. Jim, man, it is so good to have you back in the studio. Every time 
I have you come in here. It's always kind of a relief because I know it's going to be a substantive, but an also just an all-around good interview. So, again, thanks for being here today. Well, it's nice to be back and to be back all in one piece. Yeah, absolutely. So. And and you have been on the ground in Ukraine recently. Uh, you've seen up close and personal the stakes, and you've spoken with the highest levels, including President Zelensky. Uh, but just taking a step back from all of the minutiae that I'm sure that you were uh, introduced to, what is your overall takeaway you know, from this trip? You know, it's funny because, you know, I was in the Army for 25 years. And in 25 years, I was never in a war zone. Wow. I've been in two war zones in the last two months. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is not how I was envisioning my re- my retirement years. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, look. The uh, as everybody knows, because you, you can read the newspapers, the Ukrainian military went on the offensive, and, and this is called a counteroffensive, and that means somebody attacks you, they take ground away, and then you do a broad counterattack to take ground back, and they have taken back significant amounts of territory. So, hmm. what does that mean for the long term? Well, just like in Game of Thrones, winter is coming, and w- when winter kicks in, it, it is very hard for the, for the people that want to attack. It, it's a lot easier to defend uh, than it is is to attack, and the Ukrainians are going to hold a lot a, a lot of ground uh, as the winter comes in. and And the Ukrainians know how to fight in the winter. They've been fighting the Russians for eight years hmm. in the winter, so it's pretty clear. I think everybody, including the Russians, recognize at this point that there is going to be an uh, an independent Ukraine hmm. going forward. So that's not up for for debate and. Hmm. The other thing is, and this is really true, because one of the places we went to was the main hub where all the military aid goes into Ukraine. And lots of people have said lots of things about aid and everything else. But here, I I will tell you this. The military aid goes to the Ukrainian military, and it's used to fight Russians. Hmm. End of story. I think that's demonstrably true. Hmm. There would be no Ukraine today if it wasn't for the U.S. military aid. Now, Hmm. the Ukrainians are fighting— and dying for their own country. Yeah. But they but you have to have weapons to fight. Yeah. And it's in particular it's the US weapons that have kept them in the game. And so if there is a Ukraine today, hmm. it's because of US military aid. Well, period. You you mentioned uh, a counteroffensive. Um and and that kind of leads into my next question. So who is winning this war? I mean, Russia came on strong. You saw the pictures in Mariupol and, you know, shelling, constant bombing, all this stuff like that. Uh but then you start hearing again words like counteroffensive. So is there a certain, you know, can you say who's currently winning? Yeah. Well, not to be a Weasley guy here, but look, winning and losing are kind of textbook things. You mm-hmm. know, you read a chapter in your high school textbook and World War one starts on page one of the chapter and it ends on page 30. And then, you know, and that's not how real life is. So it's it's difficult to talk about winning and losing hmm. uh, as if it's like a baseball game. And at, yeah. at some score, we're done and we go home. Hmm. Um, and, and it's also difficult to predict. I mean, war is it's a competition between two sides. So anybody says, well, this is what's going to happen. Nobody knows that for sure. Most of us are just doing play by play, to be honest. Right. But. Uh, you know, if winning means an independent Ukraine that can that can stand, that that I think is done. Hmm. I mean, I think that seems pretty clear at this point. Uh, if you look at the Russian military, they've really burned through the professional Russian military force, and hmm. now they're actually putting 
you know, conscripts in the military. And people see this thing recently where the Russians said we're going to mobilize 300,000 people, which in part means that I have to go out and find these people and drag them in. Yeah. But what does that mean in real terms, in terms of what we call combat power? Well, hmm. mo- first of all, you have to collect them. You have to put them somewhere, house them, feed them, get uniforms for them, equip them, train them, organize them, and then send them into battle. Hmm. That's The Russians aren't going to produce, that's not going to produce any real military capability for the Russians anytime soon. And I was and I was reading an article about some of the protests that are taking place. The Russians have been uh, jailing people who have been protesting against going to war. We've heard about the shooter at the military recruitment center, uh, the, the, the shooter at the school. Uh, all of this kind of happening right now as almost a pushback from inside Russia. Right. So I can't see this going well for them. Well, right now. I mean, let's not overplay this, but it when you add it up, it's just more bad news. I mean, mm. there there is internal dissensions, not going to maybe stop Putin from prosecuting the war, but he's creating this internal dissension, and he's not really getting much military capability for that. Right. And remember, you're taking three hundred thousand men mm. and more because people are fleeing the country. I was I was with a guy the other day from Azerbaijan, and you know, there's visa free travel between Russia and Azerbaijan. The the ticket, an airline ticket from Russia to Baku today costs ten thousand dollars. Oh my god! Because people are just trying to get the heck out of the country. <laughs> so, so on top of we have this enormous economic dislocation on an economy that's already not doing well. People can say whatever they want about sanctions. Sanctions are having impact, mm. and this taking three hundred thousand people more and more out of the economy mm. uh, and disrupting is just going to have a more negative impact. So you've got political isolation, sanctions, not going well on the battlefield, internal turmoil, and a struggling economy. None of these put Putin in a stronger position. Take us to the streets of where you walked in Ukraine. Give us a sense for what you saw, how you perceive things, and how they're perceiving things, people on the ground there living. Yeah, I I would say two things. So one place we went to was Bucha, which is on the suburbs of Kiev, which was the high watermark of the Russian incursion to try to take the capital. Stunning because of how close it actually is to Kiev. But also the town was really just beaten up really bad. And it was also the site of of one of the mass graves. And and that, to me, is one of the takeaways here is we support the Ukrainians because it's in our interest to do that. Mm. And the reason for that is, look, for Putin, it's not about the Ukraine. He wants to reabsorb the post-Soviet states he wants dictatorial control over Central Europe. He wants NATO to dissolve. He wants to push the United States in the sea. That's if we help, if by helping the Ukrainians we stop that, that is that is in our interest. And mm. and what does China want? China wants exactly what the Russians want. China's not mad at Russia because they invaded Ukraine. They're mad at the Russians because they didn't win. Uh, China wants a Europe that's divided, distracted, weakened. Um, that's a bad partner for the United States. So. In helping the Ukrainians, we are helping ourselves. Hmm. Um, so, but even beyond that, because the day we left, there was another mass grave discovered. Hmm. Hundreds of people that were murdered, thrown into a hole, some of them tortured. Wow. We have to remember, Putin is a global actor. Yeah. And if anybody thinks that, that this leader, who is completely vile— and dangerous, that just unleashing them on the world stage to do whatever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want, that somehow that's not going to come back and hurt us someday, Yeah, that's just nuts. So if we yeah, help safe. push this guy back a bit, that's in our interest to do that. The other thing I would just say is 
you know, I walked, we were in the Capitol in Kiev, and it looked like Tuesday. Um, people are hmm. going about their business, living their lives. Um, and the, this is the people to the person, I think, are very determined to fight and save their country and and get back in, which is one of the reasons why the number one thing the Ukrainians are asking for right now is air defense, because yeah. they want people to be able to come back to the country, go back to work. Half the economy has gone offline. So this is a very resilient, patriotic, nationalist people, you know, half of whom are ethnically Russian, sure. who are are really determined to fight for their country. This mm. is not this is not like um, Afghanistan. Yeah. This. Yeah. Well, I was I was just going to ask you. I wanted to pick up on where you left off with 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 China looking in here, and also um, Iran, because those are two key players that you mentioned way back when we had this interview right. in, in late February. We talked about the stakes, and now we're here. Have we seen any more development of China's involvement here, or or Iran's involvement here, or has that been pretty much dormant? Um, well, the Chinese are uh, really. Um, this is just more bad news for them. A whole thing of bad news. Huh. So. They're in the um, uh, they're they're kind of deer in the headlights here. The Iranians are interesting because you know there was a lot of news that the Iranians were selling or giving drones to the Russians. Right. Um, well, that had two impacts. One is it it, it gave the Ukrainians a lot more targets because hmm. uh, the Ukrainian drones turned out to be not all that great. But the other is um, the Israelis who kind of were sitting on the sidelines. And a lot of countries are because. because you know, they don't necessarily want to antagonize Russia. Right. They, well, because of the Iranian involvement in helping the Ukrainians out, it's really pushed the um, Israelis to help the Ukrainians out more. So that's been good. All right. So I, I just want to throw out a just, you know, we, we've heard reports on Putin's health. Um, right. and, and I don't know if any of that's substantiated or if it's, you know, if it's just, you know, just in, out there in the ether and it's, you know, nothing. But, you know, if there is a health issue there and Putin somehow is done, is this thing just end? Is this really just Putin's, this is him driving it, nobody else? Or does this continue even if he's well, gone? Well, not necessarily because there, I mean, there are a lot of other people in the country that, that were, were for this. Um, hmm. It's funny you should raise this issue because as we speak this weekend, we saw not just demonstrations in Russia, right. rioting in Iran against the regime, hmm. and even talk in China about a coup d'etat against the president. So in the three most aggressive authoritarian regimes in the world, we have basically problems for all of them on the home front, which is interesting. And what do you make of that? And I really recommend people read a book by a guy named Natan Sharansky called The Case for Democracies. Because okay. one of the things he points out is that one of the characteristics of these regimes these are the, is when they do collapse, like it happens all of a sudden, nobody can really predict it. And there's a reason for that. It's because in other societies and governments, we know where things are going because there's access to information. But in an authoritarian regime, not only is there they're not access, even people in the regime often don't know right. what's going on. So that's why everybody's surprised. The Tsar of Russia, you know, Mussolini, um, everybody's surprised when things collapse. Hmm. So uh, I'm not one who thinks that we can reliably predict when the day for these people go up. But I, I do think one of the interesting things today is just, you know, years ago, the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians were trumpeting the alternative to democracy and free enterprise and everything hmm. else, and and look at them struggling now. So that's wow. that's a bit of good news. 
Well, Jim, I, I wanted to thank you for, for coming in here today and giving us your perspective on this. It's a great check-in, and we're going to continue to track it as we do this. But um, but anyway, yeah, thank you so much for being here. And if you have anything else to leave us with, I, I want to give you that, because this trip is really a, a seminal moment in, in heritage research and heritage perspective. And so if we can guide those who listen to this program, which is a lot, I wanted to give you that chance. No, I think it's look. there should be bipartisan support for Ukraine because it is in U.S. interest. But I got to tell you, I am honestly disappointed in our government. It's not meant to be a partisan political comedy or anything else, but this administration has no heart for this. Mm. They were really kind of dragged into it. And mostly what they want to do is throw money at the problem. And we need to be so much better than that. We need to help the Ukrainians, but we need to do it in a way that's smart. Um, We need to not needlessly burden the U.S. taxpayer. Um, And we need to think about helping build a Ukraine that is a, a net contributor and not a, a foreign policy basket case. I look across this administration, I don't see that kind of leadership there. And so as grateful as I am for the aid, I, I do think our administration has mismanaged the war. Mm. And I, I don't think we should be patting them on the back. I think we should be holding them accountable. So I'd like to see Congress debate more, argue more, dig into this more to make sure that we're doing the right strategy and we're spending the right money in the right way. Mm-hmm. And I think we as liberals and conservatives ought to be coming together demanding that from our government, not be just having a partisan position that says, well, our president, so we like what he's doing. He's not our, we don't, we didn't vote for this guy, so we don't like what he's doing. Nobody should be satisfied with what our government is doing. We should all be arguing for a laser-like policy that really puts America's interests first mm. and, and it's not politics leading. Jim, thank you so much for being here this episode. Thank you. That's it. That's a wrap for this episode of Heritage Explains. Thank you so much for listening. Go ahead, hit that like button, share our podcast, leave us a comment, do all those things that we ask you to do each and every episode. We greatly appreciate it. Also, head over to the show notes. I've linked to some of the Heritage Foundation work that we've done on Ukraine, as well as what's happening right now in Congress in terms of funding Ukraine. Michelle's up next episode, and we'll catch you then. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by John Pop.